0: Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org, that's www.markinc.org. Turn with me to First Samuel chapter 16 we have been talking about the call of David in our series on David and I've entitled this first part of the series what is it that makes for a man after God's own heart many of our scholars like to focus on the character of David the fact that he was a man of integrity according to Psalm 78 the fact that he was skillful that he had certain talents and gifts and abilities and all of that is true but that is not what made him a man after God's own heart 2nd Chronicles chapter 16 verse 9 says for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him You have done a foolish thing if you were to believe that somehow or another what makes for a man after God's own heart is your inherent character. Hearts that are fully committed to him are hearts that are made that way by the grace of God. Certainly God desires of us integrity. Certainly he desires of us to use the skills and the talents that he's given us. But to paint the picture that somehow God is sitting in the heavens searching or hoping or longing or looking for a man he can use somehow to fit his plan and purpose is what I said is the scourge of Arminian doctrine. God is not in the business of setting his plans in the concrete of human ability or human will. God does not look for capable men who can execute his will. He makes out of the depravity of human hearts men who are equipped and thus made capable to achieve his plans and his purposes. It is not the orchestrations of God that is our focus oftentimes. It's the orchestrations of men. What we've done, what we've accomplished. It is God's plan of covenant it is God's plan of fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. It is God's plan of building his kingdom for which there will be no end. It is God's plan of redemption where he is calling a people to himself and knows who's his, who his elect are. It is God's plan of covenant and kingdom and redemption begun in the seed of the woman and ultimately fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes again to take his church into glory. It is that plan of God, it is that purpose of God into which you and I must fit. It is into that arena, into that scene that we see David emerge. Not because of inherent worth, not because of human ability, not because he had integrity of heart or was skillful Or any of those other things that we call image. Israel had already tried that and failed. Saul was raised to his position of kingship because of image. Because he looked the part. Because he was tall and seemed to be a powerful man. But what a tragedy Saul's kingship proved to be on Israel. I was thinking the other night about my childhood I often do that especially in some of my more nostalgic moments and for some reason I told my wife I said remember this name don't let me forget this name Tommy Popovich came to mind now I want to tell you something about Tommy Popovich we didn't use the word nerd back then but Tommy would have fit that word I hope this tape doesn't go out where Tommy Popovich lives. (laughs) A skinny little runt. Kind of a sissy boy. He was always the guy when we were raised in Catholic school. I remember when we would have recess. The nuns would always pick me. And one other guy, because we were the most athletic guys, to be the captains of the teams whether it be soccer or kickball or, or, or baseball or in the wintertime when we go, would go into the gym and play different things in the gym, whether it's basketball or whatever, I was always the guy picked to be the captain of the team. And everybody else would line up. We would have this big lineup and I would pick this person, they would pick that person. And there's always one guy who's left standing with his hands in his pocket and his knobby little knees and his black, wide Uh, rimmed glasses and it was always Tommy Popovich. He was always the guy bringing up the rear and he would just kind of stand there and we would just all kind of be embarrassed for him. Any of you were ever the last guy picked? I remember one day it just kind of hit me that Tommy Popovich was obviously hurting because every time we would have one of these games you would just kind of see him kind of meander to the back because he knew he was going to be the last one picked. And I'll never forget one day when I stood up, we had this big soccer game that we were going to play. And Sister Mary Evelyn came to me and said, you're the captain. You be the first one to pick. And I said, I pick Tommy Popovich. I thought the kid was going to pass out right there on the spot. Now, there were two reasons why I picked him. One was a real spiritual reason, and one was not so spiritual. The real spiritual reason was I really felt bad that the kid was always the last one picked. It broke my heart because I kept thinking, what would I feel like if I was the last guy picked standing there? I mean, he got picked after the girls. The girls were picked before him. Tommy was after the girls were picked. The second reason was not so spiritual. I decided we could whoop that other team even with Tommy Popovich. And we were were going to have some fun doing it. But I'll never forget the expression on his face. And every time after that, I would always pick him first. And do you know something? Whenever there were games in which I wasn't the captain, everybody else picked Tommy Popovich first. He was horrible. The guy was so uncoordinated. He was horrible. But for some reason, everybody decided You have a better shot at winning if you pick Tommy Popovich on your team. (laughs) And I thought of Tommy Popovich when I I thought about this passage in 1 Samuel 16 when it came to David. David had seven brothers. And one by one, they marched past Samuel. And you can almost sense the pride in their father when Eliab comes down the aisle. Here's big, tall Eliab, the eldest son, clearly the one most qualified to be the king. And God whispers in Samuel's ear, No, that's not the one. Then comes Abinadab and Shema, And one by one, the seven brothers of David are picked, so to speak, by their father. And one by one, they are eliminated by God. Similar to what God had already done with Saul first Samuel 16 verses 1 and 2 the Lord said to Samuel how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel fill your horn with oil be on your way I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem I have chosen one of his sons to be king he didn't say David he said one of his sons but Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And we talked about last week the paranoia that was throughout the land and the fear that permeated the land because Saul was basically going insane. There was great fear. Clearly, God had already determined to do in secret, or to do in public what he, had already, what he had already done in secret. God had already rejected Saul as king in secret. Saul did not fully comprehend all of that when he finally did he truly went insane oftentimes God rejects first in private even though there appears to be great blessing and success on someone's life what a tragic and fearful thing to be rejected by God in secret knowing that eventually it'll be shouted from the housetops God had already rejected Saul he had already rejected his administration Now it would become public. And in so doing, there was great fear and cynicism. And when Samuel did come to Bethlehem, the elders of the city met him there. And in verse uh, 4, when he arrived there, they said, Do you come in peace? They wondered, Why is this prophet coming to town? Is he here to pronounce judgment on us because of the sins of Saul? Is he here to cause trouble? And they feared the prophet. Samuel replied, verse 5, Yes, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And he challenges them, Consecrate yourselves and worship with me. But he never tells them what he's there to do. He never says why he had come. He never talks about anointing somebody to be the king. Verse 6, it says, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought. Notice he didn't say it, he thought it. Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider the fact that he looks like Tommy Popovich. Do not consider what he looks like on the outside. Do not consider that he's strong and tall and mighty. Do not consider what his image is. There's something deeper at stake here. It's not what he looks like. It's what his heart's like. For I've rejected him. You'll find out as we progress in this series why God... Rejected Eliab. Then he makes this intriguing statement. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. I love that verse. I love that verse. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. What can you do for me? What can you do to improve my chances for success? What can you do to make me look better? That's how we view men. But God says, no, I look at the heart. I look at what's inside of a man's heart. I look at his character. I look at his love for me. I look at his submission. What a thought to be rejected by God. He was the eldest son, held the place of privilege in a Jewish home, likely successor because simply because he was the eldest son. But there was a flaw in this one's character a flaw that would emerge later on, a flaw that showed that his heart was not fully committed to his God. Eliab was in the business of pleasing Eliab. Verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab, had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Can you imagine what must have been going through Samuel's heart, Samuel's mind? One by one, these sons passed by. Clearly good looking boys. Clearly talented men. All of them were in Saul's army. They were warrior men. And all seven of them passed by. It's an interesting number, by the way, parenthetically, the number seven. But what's even more interesting is the number eight. The number eight is always the number in Scripture of a new beginning. It's always the number of starting over. It's the number of revival, if you will, of new beginnings. It was time for a fresh start. It was time to put Saul behind Israel and for David to emerge. He was the eighth child, the new beginning child, David would usher in a fresh and exciting and new epic in redemption history. David would be the prototype of Messiah to come. You know, God has a way of marking out fresh beginnings, especially after dire failures and nightmarish plans. All of us have been through that. All of us have come to points in our lives where we have failed miserably, where we, our plans have, have just, just hit the wall. And what we hoped to accomplish never gets accomplished. Our dreams are never fulfilled. We hit that brick wall of cynicism or doubt or sin or failure of some sort whether it's because of us or because of the influence of sinful people in our lives, sometimes we hit that brick wall and our spirits seem to die. You ever been there? You ever had a crushed spirit? Have you ever had a broken heart? I mean a truly broken heart. Have you ever grieved? Truly grieve. Not just the loss of a loved one. But loss of any sort. Have you ever truly grieved? Maybe the loss of your reputation. Or the loss of the faithfulness of a spouse. Or the loss of a child who thumbs his nose at everything you've ever taught him. Or the loss of a job. Or the loss of loyalty. The loss of a good friend people you thought were friends who betray you or maybe the loss of faith where you doubt the existence of God where you wonder whether or not God has deserted you have you ever really experienced loss have you ever really grieved has your heart ever really been broken I think most of us can say To one degree or another, the answer to that question is yes. Have you ever been the last one picked? And I don't mean that literally. Have you ever had that sense of belonging that just seemed to disappear where you look at other people and you say, I just can't match up. I'm just not on the same planet, not in the same boat. I can't seem to achieve anything. And you hit, that, you hit that brick wall and you beg God for a season of refreshing. You, you beg God for a new beginning, a fresh start. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. That's exactly what's going on in this passage. God marches through the number seven. He comes to number eight and he says, it's time, it's time for a fresh start. You know, God specializes in bringing nations to an end to themselves, so that he might send refreshing breezes and respites and calm. We keep hearing our our wonderful missionaries telling us of the antithesis to the gospel, of the the closed-mindedness to the gospel that exists around the world, and yet I believe with all of my heart that closed-mindedness exists right here in our own nation. There's a hardness of heart, and sometimes God brings us as nations to an end to ourselves, so that we might experience seasons of renewal. I think he brings churches through that. Churches become mighty proud in their accomplishments, patting themselves on the back, marching as Eliab did in front of the prophets and... and, 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 Assuming that because they look a certain way or they they have a certain image that somehow or another the blessing of God is on them. I know of very large, dynamic, prospering, liberal churches that do not believe a shred of the gospel. And their, their, their churches are packed to the gills, many of them. With people who listen week after week to nothing. So image goes deeper than what we look like on the outside. As a nation, we seem to be a prospering nation, yet there is a sense of moral decay within. We've lost that moral compass. It's not there anymore. The prophets do not speak anymore. The churches do not have a message anymore. There's no testimony. There's no faithfulness in our communities to anything that remotely resembles the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we've lost that sense of moral rightness as a nation can lose it as churches we can lose it as families stop and think about the things today you tolerate that five years ago you wouldn't have think of how far you've drifted from what you truly believe is a family and what about individuals do you need a refreshing breeze do you need a new beginning a new start and you know when I stop and think about how God does this it amazes me he doesn't do it on the basis of outward appearance he told us that categorically he does it on the basis of what he perceives in a man's heart and he does it on the basis of his plan and his purpose according to election you know God did not choose Eliab he chose David he did not choose Ishmael he chose Isaac he did not choose Esau He chose Jacob. He did not choose Egypt or Babylon or Greece or Rome, the powerful nations of the world. He chose Israel, the weakest of the nations. We must marvel at the doctrine of divine election. We must marvel that it is God who is orchestrating the parts to come together. It is God who chose you. It is God who elected you. It is God who put you into that beautiful mosaic that he's building. It is God who fitted you rightfully into that place. It is God who gives you your identity. It is God who makes you who you are. Not the approval of men. Not even the skills that you possess. Certainly not what we look like. Certainly not what image we are able to present what makes us who we are, what gives us our identity is the fact that we have been grafted into the family of a holy God. We have been called sons and daughters of the king. That's what gives us our identity. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 is what I like to call the spiritual birthmark. You know, all of us have a birthmark. All of us have a little spot somewhere on our bodies. Uh, or some sort of birthmark somewhere that identifies us whether it's our thumbprint or or some physical mark that identifies us Romans 8 Romans 8:30 I think is our spiritual birthmark. And those he predestined he also called. And those he called he also justified. And those he justified he also glorified. Or 1 Peter 2:9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful or marvelous light. That's your identity. That's who you are. 1 Peter 2:9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness And into his wonderful or marvelous light. That's your identity. That's who you are. So much of what we think of ourselves is wrapped up in what kind of a mother we are. What kind of a husband we are. What kind of a preacher we are. What kind of a church member. What kind of an employer or employee. How much money I make. What others think of me. What influence I carry. What power I hold. What degrees are behind my name? What house I live in? What neighborhood I call home? And on and on the list goes of things that we use to identify ourselves as either successful, the gifted ones who will help to win the game, or the Tommy Popoviches who sit in the back room. And yet God perceives things totally different. Oh yes, David had integrity of heart. Now that integrity was often compromised. And he had skillful hands. And oftentimes that skill got him into more trouble than it was worth. But fundamentally what made David a man after God's own heart was God. What makes you a man after God's own heart is his election of you. The fact that he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what makes you a man after God's own heart. You know, when I stand before God someday, and when you stand before God someday, I want you to think about this. Of all the things you have accomplished or will have accomplished by that time in your life, which of those things will you be able to use to boast of as somehow warranting you eternal life? Which of those things? Now say it with me. None of them. Look to the person next to you and say, none of them. None of them. Not one thing you can boast of today as an accomplishment will be able to be presented to God in that day as somehow granting you worthiness for eternal life. Now what is the one thing that the Father will look at? He will look at whether or not the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, lives in your heart. Pure and simple. What have you done with my son? What makes us men and women after God's own heart is his son. It is his son in whom God is well pleased. It is the son that pleases the father. It is the son that brings glory to the father. If you have the son, you are a man after God's own heart. If you are a, son, if you are a daughter of the king, you are a woman after God's own heart. Those other things are simple tools that God gives you to use for his glory. We've talked in the past about how many talented people there are in this world. How many talented actors, how many women are so incredibly beautiful and gorgeous in their physical appearance. How many of them one day are going to have to stand before God and account for how they use their bodies? I gave you that beauty, what did you do with it? Well, I flaunted it. I tempted others with it. I taught little girls how to dress immorally. One of the heroes of of the, the junior high girls in the past few years has been Britney Spears. She now has a video that's not even showable on TV. Those are the heroes. You're the ones going out and buying your daughters these records, these CDs. You're the ones that are saying, that's your hero. That's who I want you to be like. Look at Aliab, Look at Saul. Be like him. Who are your child's heroes? How many people? How many talented? The, the debate rages again. Uh, I hear it all the time sports heroes who get 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year because they've had God-given talents given to them, abilities to play or jump or run or whatever it is. They get these massive contracts and then somebody approaches them and says, well, what's this going to do about you being a role model to America's children? Well, I'm not a role model. I don't want to be anybody's role model. I'll take their money, but I don't want to be their, I don't be their role model. Nobody wants to be a role model. Nobody wants to stand up and say, I'm a role model. I want to be a hero. I want, to be, I want to be the person your child looks to for moral character. Who are your child's heroes? Who are your child's heroes? We hear it again and again and again. Image is what makes your children look to people for, heroes, uh, for their heroes. God says, no, look at the heart. Look at the heart. I can still see skinny, runty, nerdy Tommy Popovich. I can still see. I can see him right now. I can see his face lighting up when I said, I pick you. Did he deserve to be on the team because of human ability? Absolutely not. The kid was horrible. He wasn't chosen on the basis of ability. He was chosen on the basis of grace. My heart broke for his heart, and I chose him. Oh, in a much grander sense, in a much more glorious sense of the word. Isn't that exactly what our God has done? He chose you on the basis of his plan and purpose. He chose you because his heart grieves for you. He chose you out of love. He chose you out of mercy. Well, what are some of the early fruits of a regenerated heart? Well, we've already mentioned a heart of integrity. If a man's heart is right with God, there will be integrity. His word will be sufficient. You should be able to believe him when he says yes and believe him when he says no. That he's not going to lie to you. That there's integrity. There's honesty there. Honesty is a part of being a a heart that's been regenerated after God. Or, Or look at verse 11 of 1 Samuel 16. I believe you see the early signs of a regenerated heart here in David again. So he asked Jesse, are all these the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy. That means he was more than likely a redhead with a fine appearance and handsome features. Now he had all those external qualities. In fact, I told you the last time we were together, being a redhead in Middle Eastern thought was even even you were even considered more handsome than others but this guy wasn't handsome in the sense of his father's eyes his earthly father or even his brother's eyes he was out tending sheep apparently Jesse did not even consider David significant enough to be included in this little beauty parade he marches his seven sons down down the down the aisle One by one, and they're rejected. Yet even in this, David is the shadow of one to come. The one David's entire life is meant to foreshadow. It's interesting, when you get to the Song of Solomon, if you'd like to turn to it, that would be great. Uh, If not, just listen. In the Song of Solomon, that little tiny love song that we find in Scripture, clearly the Song of Solomon uses the language of a physical relationship between a husband and a wife the sexual intimacy of a husband and a wife to point us as a snapshot to the relationship that Jesus has with his church and so you have this husband and this wife modeling for us in snapshot prophecy the relationship the love relationship Jesus has with his church our identity is wrapped up in Jesus Who we are as men and women is wrapped up in Jesus. But in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 10, it's speaking of Jesus. It's speaking of the coming Messiah. And he says, Behold, beloved my lover is radiant and ready, outstanding among 10,000. In verse 16, His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. It's caused me, by the way, and I can't prove this, of course, but certainly in referencing David, we're told that he was ruddy. That means he was a redhead. Now the Song of Solomon references the Messiah and calls him ruddy. Is it possible that Jesus was a redhead? Not the way we've pictured him all these years? That's meaningless to this sermon, but just food for thought. (laughs) Now, friends, I want to tell you something. This is what men and women need when they come to that desert of despair. They do not need a man with power, image, or fame. We need men who are shepherds. We need shepherds in our lives. They need to be our heroes. David was out in the field shepherding. I don't know about you, but I need shepherds. I need people who are going to see me as sheep, who will tend to me as a sheep, who will treat me as though I have need, people who will help me, who will nurture me along, people who will encourage me and support me and shepherd me and get alongside of me and, if necessary, fight for me and protect me. This is not always true, what I'm about to say. It's not always true, but I have found in my years of experience it's oftentimes true. When your friends are those who stake their claim to identity on image, the moment you are having an experience with your back up against the wall and your life is coming apart, they are nowhere to be found. Because you see, their whole identity is wrapped up in success and image. And when you're struggling and when you're hurting and when you're grieving and when you're struggling and when your life is coming apart, you need a shepherd. Someone who knows your legs are broken. And will take the time necessary. I like that. His father says, oh yeah, I have one more son. But he... Is tending sheep the early signs of a regenerated heart is the heart of a shepherd the early signs of a regenerated heart is a heart that knows it's not about you it's about the glory of God in and through you turn to Psalm 132 I'm almost finished Psalm 132 look with me at verses 1 through 6 while still a youth in Bethlehem While still tending sheep, this is where David's concern was. This was before he became the king. This was before anybody said David has slain, uh, David slew Goliath. This was before David was receiving the accolades of the people. This was while he was going back tending the sheep. Because you see, after he was anointed by Samuel, what's the first thing? What's the very first thing that David does after Samuel anoints him to be the king? He goes back into the fields and tends the sheep. He had a shepherd's heart. But in Psalm 132, you get a feel for what he said when he went back into that field and tended the sheep. Oh, Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed, I will will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. That's where he was. That's where he was tending sheep. He said when he went back, I want a place that will bring glory to God. If I'm going to be the king... It's not about me. It's about the glory of God. Here is a young man, probably no more than 17 years of age, receiving from the prophet of Israel a whisper in the ear, you are going to be the king. You are going to replace Saul. No pompousness. No no sense of moral uprightness here. No one-upmanship here. David simply goes back and tends the sheep, and while he's there tending the sheep, while the sheep, while he's back there tending the sheep, what does he do? He says, my heart is bent on the glory of God. My heart is bent on a place where the mighty one of Israel can receive the glory. I want to see God in his temple. You see, the early signs of a regenerated heart is when we know it's not about us. It's about the glory of God in us. Do you understand that? Do you understand that in your own life? Do you know why God has given you what he's given you? Do you know why he's made you what you are? And contrary wise, do you know why he's brought you to that point where you're up against a brick wall? Did somehow or another all of this slip his mind? Did it just kind of slip by him and he just has to catch up with you and say, oh, well, I'm sorry, I've been neglecting you lately. Is that the kind of God you serve? Or has God strategically led you to the point where you are? Has he brought you to the position you hold, to the claim to fame that you have for a reason? If he's anointed you with position and prestige and power and influence, and many of you he's done that with, in in your own circles of influence, he's done that with many of you. If he's done that to you, you must ask this question, why has he done that? For what purpose has he done that? If it's not about me, and it truly is about His glory in me, how then can I take what He's given me and display His glory? Or will you return to work tomorrow as a King Saul? Or will you return to work tomorrow as a shepherd in the fields? I believe oftentimes he brings us to the point where our backs are up against the wall. I've been there. I've been there many times. Sometimes I think I've been there too many times, then I realize God's in control here. I've been there. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. You get to a point where, like Israel, you've escaped Egypt and you feel good about the fact that the burden's been lifted. You've escaped Egypt. And this shepherd leads you to this point where there's a mountain on your left and a mountain on your right and a sea out in front of you and an army pursuing you from the rear and there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. Your back's up against the wall. Where do we go now? Can't climb that mountain. Can't climb that mountain. Certainly can't go into that water. And if we go back, we're going to get killed. Where do we go? Where do we go? You ever been there? Are you there right now? Are you there right now? If you're there right now, can you say, Lord, thank you for bringing me to this painful point? You know, only people who understand that it's not about them, it's about the glory of God can say that. The rest are finagling and wiggling and And scheming and plotting and trying to figure out what they can do to regain control from a God who smacked them up against the wall. Israel had no other direction to look but up. What do we do, Lord? It's not about you. What did Moses say to them? Stand back, take a deep breath watch the unfolding power and glory of God. Watch what God does here. He's the one that brought us to this constrictive point. He's the one who brought us to this, to this strangulation. He's the one who brought us to this point where, where we have no direction to look but up. David went back to the field to tend the sheep. That's a hero. That's a hero. And do you know in tending those sheep God would teach him some wonderful and powerful lessons about how to deal with giants. He would have to kill lions and bears and everything else while while tending those seemingly worthless sheep in preparation for slaying giants. He didn't know that. He didn't understand that and when we come to the 18th chapter and we see him Standing there with his seven brothers saying, Who is this? Who is this? This dirt ball out here cursing Israel. Who is this guy? And why are you all standing here watching this? Why are you hiding? He takes off his coat, says, I'll take him on. You see, this is not about me, it's not about you. He's cursing the glory of our God, and we can't let him get away with that. Where do you think he learned that? He learned that tending sheep. He would oftentimes leave the 90 and 9 and go after the one that seemed to be worthless. I don't know about you, but I need shepherds in my life. I don't know about you, but when my back's up against the wall, I need people who've been there, who aren't concerned about image who are concerned about the glory and the radiance of God. So what are you going through today? What do you face this week? How much does it hurt? Is your God small? Is he too too small for this? Can you embrace it as a friend and say, God's doing this, God's doing this, to teach me exactly what it means to reflect the glory back to him When somebody whispers in your ear, you're going to be king. Don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in that. Get caught up in this. If God calls me to be king, he puts me into a position of privilege and responsibility for his glory. Now it's my job to reflect his glory. That's a man who has integrity of heart. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.